Welcome to the Start, Scale, Succeed podcast with me, your host, Nicole Higgins, the Buy and Retail Coach, sharing tips, advice, and insight from entrepreneurs that have just launched to multi-million pound business owners. We will be discussing the challenges they faced, advice they would give, and the milestones they achieved and how they got there. Also joining me will be a broad range of experts with some tips and practical how-tos, episodes that will help your business grow and to enable you to live the life you crave. The types of experts that you'll hear from will be those that you will find beneficial as you start and scale your business, from branding and social media experts to mindset coaches and PR marketing. There will also be solo episodes from me discussing a variety of topics from sourcing to maximizing the profit in your business. to launch your beauty brand in the UK or perhaps you already have one and you are looking to grow that business this week's podcast episode is a webinar with four beauty experts where we talk about brand identity PR customer reviews and testimonials and how they can help you with your business and also pitching to retailers and so much more so I hope you enjoy and let's get to it Before we get going to the questions we're going to obviously the panel are going to introduce themselves and so Jackie I'm going to come to you first can you explain who you are and what you do yeah hi there everybody uh, my name is Jackie Ripley I'm a former health and beauty editor so I worked across magazines and newspapers for around 20 years um, and then I switched out to branding and I was one of the um, original sort of brand builders of the hairbrush brand Tangle Teaser so I was there for 10 years and I'm now a um, brand consultant um, where I specialise in sort of um, brand identity, really. Fantastic. Let's go to Faye. Morning. Yeah, I'm Faye. Um, I'm the founder of Beauty Bulb. Um, previously to that, I spent six years at QVC Shopping Channel working with a lot of uh, beauty and fashion brands. Following that, I was with Jackie at Tangle Teaser, where I was global sales director for around seven years. Um working across all different sales channels, retail distributors, and um, home shopping, travel retail, etc. Um, following that, I was with Blue Gem Private Equity House, um, again, in a global sales director role. Um, and it was there that then I decided to launch Beauty Bulb as a flexible and dynamic business um, that essentially helps brand beauty and wellness brands to grow their sales and stockists in a, in a flexible way. Um, so there isn't really at Beauty Bubble one size fits all to anything that we do. Um, we have a brilliant team. Our team has over 175 years experience. Um, the business is five years old. And I guess where we are today is the business really has two halves to it. We have the consultancy where we do lots of different things. We might manage a particular retailer for a brand. We might support them with a launch. We do a lot of UK country management. We also do a lot of um, pitch contracts where we take a brand act as their new business development manager for a short period of time and pitch out to our UK or global network. Um, and then the other half of our business is the brand book. Um, and that launched just over 18 months ago and is a way for brands to easy, easily connect with um, retailers and distributors all over the world. Um, I guess, put crudely, it's um, like a, a dating a dating site for brands and global retailers and distributors. Um, and it's designed to be like super affordable, streamline the whole process of meeting with the right partners. And we're the only global service of, of, of its kind, um, the only service that works across all sales channels within the beauty industry. And we're now at 300 retailers and distributors. Um, and then we also offer uh, workshops and um, we have a, a document library to help with specific nuances within the kind of 
beauty retail sector but yeah that's us in a nutshell very good thank you very much Faye. and wendy yeah thank you nicole um yeah so we are beauty buddy um uh, we have two sides to our business as well as in uh we have an app that's like uh TripAdvisor for beauty and cosmetic products so people can leave their ratings and reviews on the products and um, you can use the app in store to scan barcodes to get the ratings and reviews on products um so it's like a digital in-store assistant and then for the brands and uh, we are data um, centric so we do insights reports but also we do product sampling campaigns for brand awareness uh, recently, we have launched our consumer panel, which we have over 100,000 women in that you can ask questions to and get your market research. Um, and we are also now doing at home consumer testing. So if you are looking to substantiate some of your claims, um, like 90% say my hair is really shiny after this, uh, we are doing that also. So, yeah, so we um, are helping brands connect directly, I suppose, with the consumer um, and get feedback in real time. So that is Beauty Buddy. Thank you very much, Wendy. And Linda? Hi there. I'm Linda Land, and I'm one of the founding partners of a boutique PR agency called Muse Communications. My background is, well, I started out actually as an undercover reporter for the American trade publication, Women's Wear Daily, where they would send me undercover into stores and trial the consumer experience. And that sort of ignited my passion for beauty. I've worked um, on lots of big brands and lots of baby brands as my own career progressed. I've turned passionate about working with niche brands and helping them go global. Some of my success has been with brands like Ula Henriksen, Penhaligans, Rodial, and I also at Muse were particularly passionate about female founders. And some of the female founders we're lucky enough to work with include Michelle Rock O'Neill, Angela Calia, Monica Blunder, Amanda Harrington, and Susie Batiz. So we are boutique, we're hands-on, and we're passionate about the brands we represent. Fantastic. Thanks very much, ladies. So today, I am going to start with Jackie. And Jackie, beauty is a really competitive market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, it is so competitive. And marketing and branding and brand identity is, is crucial as part of those building blocks for your success. Can you explain what is brand identity? Yeah, so it's um, beyond your logo, essentially. So just because you've got product and a logo, that doesn't make a brand. So when I talk about creating um, brand ID, essentially I'm talking about crafting a DNA. So it's not just the here and now, it's kind of shaping and leaving an impression on your consumer after the purchase. Um, and I think that's really important because it's it's about creating a brand energy. Um, and that's, you need somebody to feel something about your product um, because my, I always say like disproportionate passion builds a brand and the killer of a brand is indifference. And that doesn't mean somebody hates your brand. Um, it just means they don't care about it, which is even worse than hate, I think, because least hate is a feeling. <laughs> Um, And like, you know, everybody feels like urban now, like even if we live out of a city, we feel urbanly connected. So consumers expect a lot more from their brands in terms of creativity, culture, community. 
So it's about building that sense of belonging. Um, and I think that's really important for startups because, um, as you were saying, Nicole, it's such a competitive market out there. Brands are being launched all the time. So it's like you you need to build a heartbeat within the brand. Um, and when I talk about creating a sense of belonging, like you can come together over a pain point of that brand, whether it's, um, I don't know, dermatitis, frizzy hair, whatever, or, you know, a passion, um, a passion for that pain point, the message that the brand is saying, or the values of the brand. Um, so that what, you know, creates a sense of a sense of belonging, because consumers today really value personal connection. So, you know, as I said, they have to feel something about that brand, and you have to develop sort of cultural credibility, which is so important today. Um so that's how I that's the starting point of building a brand ID. It's um it's getting a heartbeat in the brand. And how do you feel that you you create that sense of belonging with your customer? How does a brand do you think that you do that? Yeah, I mean the relationships between brands and consumers have really changed. And I think it's also changed a lot during lockdown because we was on um, our socials a lot more. We were a lot more interest like we did a lot of sort of internet shopping. So we do value the rise of like newly nimble brands, which are independent brands, because they're great at social listening. They seem um, like authentic with their content. Um, and they're kind of they're seen as not managed and controlled. Um, indie brands have so many advantages um, that you need to jump on. Like first and foremost is your founder and your backstory and why the product was cre- was created, because I really feel consumers now want um, that umbilical cord, if you like, to brands. Um, they like, you know, buying into the personal. So they want to know why that brand was created and um, who the founder is behind it. They're seen as like free spirits within the beauty space. Um, like if you compare indies brands that are seen as almost speedboats and like the bigger corporate brands seen as like um, steamboats. <laughs> so I feel like, um, you know, there are a lot, you know, you can react more quickly, brands can with their social listening. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of known for their passion, their purpose and their honesty. Um and I feel like with with an indie band, you want to drive a community rather than a fan base. I think bigger brands have a fan base, whereas I think indie bands are much more about community, like they tap into people's needs and wants. And it kind of equates to a brand intimacy, really. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, when I post on my socials on a story and I put a, a product on, I really notice the brands that come back in my DM, DMs and say, I mean, I had one yesterday, I posted like an eye serum and the brand came back and said, oh, we're so thrilled that we're part of your skincare regime, like with like little cute emojis. Um, and I think that's really important because immediately, like I had that connection with yeah. the brand um, rather than something. Yeah, bigger brands don't do that, you know. No, they not. don't, you know, and I think, you know, that's a real big myth. I mean, I feel like, you know, the consumer wants to feel integrated into the brand that they're willing to put time in um, looking at their socials and also spending their, you know, hard-earned money on. And one for kind of, I suppose, a couple of you as well is in terms of if you are a founder brand, so you are an independent brand and people I work with, they're like, oh, I really don't want to show my face. I don't want to be visible. How important is it? And Jackie, you would say, I would imagine it's, it is really important for that, for that, you know, founder, for that part of that brand story to be 
central in the communications from a social point of view and everything else. What do the rest of, of you think about that in terms of how important is it to for that brand founder to be visible with those touch points? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's so important. Like a lot of brand founders have said to me, oh, God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable on camera. You know, you know, I, I don't I don't like looking at myself. I don't want people looking at me. And essentially, I just have to say, get over yourself because. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I also think that's when a good PR steps into the role. They're your front-facing person. They can promote the founder or position the founder in the best possible way. And you really need to think of your PR as your brand storyteller. And all of that is encompassed in the brand founder story. Mm-hmm. And I think one, I think if you have got a founder that isn't at the forefront, then your USP and your story has to be like so refined. And whether that's an ingredient, you know, it could be in the tech space or it could be an ingredient focused story. But it's okay to not have a founder if that story is completely nailed and really powerful, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you've really got to drive home your, um, you know, your USP there if you haven't got a founder. And I think, um, you know, bringing a pain point to the forefront as well that people can sort of bond over. Um, I think, yeah, keep your, your product essentially, if you haven't got a founder, needs to slay. I mean, keep highlighting the points that set your, your brand apart. Um, and also people have become product loyal rather than brand loyal. So really kind of pull out the USPs of, of the product. And a question for all of you in terms, because you'll all see it at different points, but how do you think the relationship between brands and consumers have changed? Uh, Wendy, if I could ask you that first in terms of how that relationship between brands and consumers have changed, do you think? Yeah, well, we see it, um, I suppose, with people just putting the reviews. They really, I suppose, share their love for brands and products uh, without any like incentive to do so as well. Um, so the relationship is that they definitely feel closer to the brand, that the brand is like reading their reviews and understanding like seeing them, like what Jackie said, if you, you know, post a picture and they say thanks. So it feels like they 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 know the brand, that the brand isn't this big corporate uh company up there anymore, that they can actually get closer to the brand and know more about the brands. Um I think for us, obviously we do, you know, the brand awareness um with the product sampling, which is, you know, um, and we have done lots of different campaigns where we do the Zoom call then with all the, the users of the products that you've sent the samples out to and the brand actually gets to talk to them and give them their story. And the the loyalty that comes from that alone, where they feel they actually know the person behind the yeah. brand, they know the story. So it's just, uh, I think the consumers expect brands to be more accessible to them like um, and expect more from the brand and not just being advertised at, you know, yeah. they, they want to know, they want to connect with that brand and consumers are much more educated, I believe in the, in the beauty industry as in, um, on ingredients and, you know, different things like that. They're, they're, they do a lot of research now. So, you know, it needs to be authentic brand and your products, if your product works, you know, all you have to do is get it into enough hands, you know, to be to be loved. Like so, I think yeah, the consumers are just much more intelligent when it comes to 
um, purchasing products. Yeah, and I, I think that is a thread that kind of flows through into when you're pitching your brand, having those like testimonials and that love there is like yeah. it's 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 a key part now. Um, and 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 also things like having in general like clinical trials and and statistics that you can share straight off the bat is really important. Yeah. And, um, from a community point of view, and it's a question that's come through from from Grace. So, at a, as a brand, as it's starting out, um, how do you think a brand can start building that community from scratch? So, from a social point of view and social pillars, or you know, how what are your thoughts with that? Um, I think you use your brand to be good leaders and humans. So, you get to know your followers, sort of, or you put your self belief system forward. Um, you know, you keep your consumers front and centre, not not sidelined. I mean, consumers today are driven by information, education and emotion. Um, and that's across like Instagram and and TikTok. Um, just think um, I always say the three C's for social growth are content, which has to be valuable, um, connection and consistency. So you really have to kind of feel how you're, you play your brand and products out. Um, and be copy confident. You know, your message needs to be concise. Um, it needs to be inviting without being too clever where people have to read it a hundred times to kind of get your message, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and like just talking about the key pillars for great social, I think, you know, the overarching pillars are, you know, education, engagement, inspiration, community and sensory. Um, like people like to see the um, textures of, of products or if you can't you know because if you buy in store the first thing you do when you buy a product is smell it and the last thing you do is smell it or you feel it so you need to bring that over in social as well um, I think a lot of some of my clients will say to me you know what am I supposed to be posting I haven't got the product yet and, and if you're creating a beauty brand that creation stage can take such a long time but it's not and to your point Jackie then as well it's not just about um the you're not gonna even when you've got the product ready you're not always going to post product 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 you're going to post the education you're going to post different things and yeah well sorry Linda no I was just going to say when brands are plotting out their social media content they really should revert back to their key messages that they're trying to communicate and each grid post or each story or any content that they share should tick off those key messages. And Wendy, you do quite a bit with people that are starting out as well in yeah. terms of the consumer reviews and that side of things, which obviously is going to help build trust as you're, you know, even if you've not got your packaging sorted yet, you can send off little testers to the community yeah. and that kind of thing. Can you explain about how you work and how that helps the brand? Yeah, I suppose. So, yeah, we work with all size brands. So we can send out your products uh, based on your target market. Uh, so consumer with dry skin, that's 35, we can send out your product too. But when you're starting, I think what's really good is to send it to like a wider range of women or men or whatever. And basically then we're able to tell you actually who actually really, really loved it. So it was like maybe 25 year olds with like oily skin adore your product, but people with this type of skin don't really like your product. And all that is really brilliant, you know feedback and um, obviously when you do that campaign then we let you share the reviews so you have the reviews for your website you can share the reviews on your social media 
They're third party reviews. They're not from the brand saying, oh, our product's great, um, which is great validation. And also then we have like a newsletter and we run, you know, we, t- we tell the consumer about your product, tell them the story behind the brand, as Linda was saying, so important to get the story you know, right of who you are and who your brand is and, you know, where you're going with that. So for us, yes, I think it's, and then you take the reviews and you take the feedback and you have someone like Faye who's doing the introductions to retailers who, you know, it makes everybody's life easier if the retailer can see that actually these women absolutely love this product and this is the feedback and it's an independent person doing the feedback and you know it's it's an easier decision for retailers to take in a brand that is yeah. is already loved um, and it doesn't take a lot of work to get that done and and Faye on the commercial side of things then if you so you've got your branding sorted you're you're clear on your story and that side of things where should you be structuring your your margin and your you know and your pricing? So with pricing, I guess when 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 we're looking at margins, really it depends on the size of the retailer is the honest answer. And you will see margin expectations, which are anything from 40% at the kind of indie retailer level right through to 60%, but they really do vary by retailer size and type. Um some bricks, other things to think about within this are things like bricks and mortar stores. They might request a staffing um, contribution that, again, that can be anything between one and 5%. Um, Just on that, I would say when you are looking at things like that, make sure you're tying anything like that into sales targets. So offering them a certain percentage if they hit X, but then a different percentage if they hit Y. Um, Other things to consider are marketing rebates so this can be a really good way to get some marketing focus built into your plan with them if you don't have a lot of budget up front so um for example you might offer a retailer 50 percent, but they may come back and say um let's 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 pitch it at 55 and you can get certain things included within that um i think you have to have that would be digital assets maybe i think if you so on the marketing side it could be if they're if it was cult beauty it might be banner you'll get this you'll get that yeah e-marketing social inclusion competitions um yeah exactly that but I'd say you need if you are going to agree to that right straight off the bat then you need to have clarity on what that looks like how that's going to be spent is there a joint business plan in place um and you know a joint business plan for anyone that doesn't know is like a year-long plan essentially built out by the retailer where you look at a monthly plan and that will cover things like um promotional windows or again social marketing opportunities PR opportunities in-store events you know they have like a rough idea of what they're going to be focused on in terms of stories ingredients categories throughout the year so just making sure that you're placed within that um, but when you're agreeing your margin and looking at that side of things um, yeah you just need to make sure that's all mapped out and clear and that you've got a really good kind of two-way conversation going um, and then I think when it comes to setting your price in, you have to look at what your competitors are doing. Um, why is your price as, as it is? Um, you need to launch at a price that allows both you and the retailer to make money. You know, essentially, you know, crudely, that is what you're all trying to do. Um, so that is key. But I'd say, you know, if you are going to be at the premium end, then you have to be able to explain why. So whether that's ingredients or tech or whatever it is, you have to be able to to kind of you know kind of display that in the information that you're sharing at that point but 
it is very difficult once you set your RRP, it's not and your wholesale price and your margin, etc. It isn't easy to change that. I mean, you will know, Nicole, it's not easy to change that once it's in place. It can be changed and you can renegotiate. But if you're setting pricing and agreeing margin, but then something changes within your kind of your chain, you can't go three months later to the retailer and say, by the way, we're going to increase the RRP by this percent and that means we need to increase your pricing you kind of have to have that all set out and researched properly at the at the start yeah so just to recap a little bit on that in terms of if you're approaching more independent beauty boutiques they would be looking for about a 40 percent um, 40 to 45 i would say and margin and then it would go up to about 60 percent for larger retailers in terms of the profit margin that they would be expecting exactly that but with the 60 percent i'd be asking myself okay what why is this so so, so much higher than maybe a more standard 50 to 55. It might be that they have huge amount of store distribution. It might be that you're getting certain amount of marketing for free that is kind of, you can't even put a figure on it. If it was somebody like Sephora, um, for example, and they have a database of millions that you're going to be, you know, be able to tap into, um, then it's, you know, it, it kind of does make sense in certain situations. But I'd always kind of look at what are you getting for the margin before you agree it um, and just really kind of have a look at what they are able to offer you. And it's, and it's always really exciting as a brand when you get, um, a, you know, a, re, a big retailer interested, and but then they come with all the kind of commercial considerations. And I would just really take stock and review them yourself and try and get another set of eyes and ears on them if you can. Yeah, it's not something you need to rush into. You know, you do need to take that time at the beginning, make sure you, you've got your ducks in a row. And so as we jumped a little head, ahead a little bit, so to take it back, if you've not approached retailers yet, what yes. should you be putting in your pitch deck in terms of, you know, what are the kind of timings that you need to be thinking about? What should be in the deck? What are the expectations that the retailer has from you? So I would just say we've already covered some of this off, but be really concise. They don't want a 30 page deck when they first. I mean, we had we did we did a live with Stacia and it was brilliant. And she kind of just confirmed all of this for brands. But that Stacia from Colt, but you have to be standout. You have to nail your USP. What is your why? And it's great that you might have lots of other ethical considerations and certifications, but what is your why? Why does that retailer need you on their platform, on their shelf? What are you going to offer? What space are you going to fill that's going to generate them um, additional revenue? Um, so, yeah, be concise. Be straight to the point with that. 10 to 12 pages is plenty for that initial retail reach out you can always go back with kind of the more detailed product brochure later on once you've got through the door um as we said testimonials and reviews from real people are really key now um and i think just showing them what the future of your brand looks like so what what are you doing from a pr launch perspective what are you doing in terms of events but a key part is npd you know what does your npd pipeline and look if you're a small startup brand you're not going to have like millions of pounds probably to invest in you know 10 different products over the next two years but you it's like you just need to show them the future and your your kind of visualization for the future because they're going to need these stories and these products to be able to continue to elevate and talk about your brand as you partner with them. Um, I'd say any touch point with these retailers, you're on a stage. So whether it's your deck, it needs to look slick. So make sure you have a, des a designer look over it if, if you can, unless, you know, unless you're a wish yourself, which I'm not, but have, you know, have, have someone look over it. So it looks immaculate. Um, if you're going to send samples, don't say you're going to send them, but send them four weeks later, send them the next day, make sure they're there, package nicely, that everything that you say to them and show them is, is a representation of your brand. So the slicker, 
and the kind of more well put together and professional it is, all of these things are going to stay in their mind. Um, and then in terms of timings, I guess this is something that's really relevant to our business, but you, there is going to have to be an element of being patient because um, depending on things like intake dates, different focuses, category focuses with a retailer or ingredient focuses or story focuses or just what they're able to take. You never know what's going on behind the scenes. So you might be pitching a um, an amazing brow brand. Just made that up out of thin air, but you may you may be pitching a brow brand. You don't know that they're not currently talking to another brow brand, so they're not necessarily ignoring you. It's just that you just don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So I would say be patient. Um, continue to pitch. You can't just keep sending them the same e- email. So if you are sending them three or four emails through over six months, there has to be news. There has to be updates. There has to show that you're growing and investing and pushing forward um but yeah just pay time like just be patient it's very rare that it does happen but it's rare that we send an email and we get a, a response you know within a week from a buyer it can take months and I know nobody wants to hear that but it's just the truth yes. I um I have a podcast start scale succeed mm-hmm. a little plug there but um and one of my guests who she her brand is wild source and she got stopped in liberties but it was after 15 to 20 emails. It was after, you know, um, because I said how many times you said, oh, about 15 to 20 times. I just was like, just checking in what was new, all that kind of thing. And then that relationship started and then she was stocked in the um, the Liberty Beauty advent calendar, which would obviously be huge for her brand and, and great distribution as well. So I think it is, it's that persistence and also making sure from a social point of view that you're following them on LinkedIn. Because sometimes it can be hard to think of what that hook is going to be, you know following them on LinkedIn, understanding what they're going after. It might be sustainability or they might be looking at, it might be something that they're talking about and you can use that little breadcrumb of something to be, to have make your email a bit more interesting about what you're going to talk to them about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's important to make your brand relevant to the current conversation, whether that's in media or retailing or social media. And and I think known as well, Linda, that for them having the confidence, oh, she knows what she, he or she, the brand knows what they're talking about. They know what they're doing, you know, and and that if you've got, if you do something then with you, Wendy, in terms of, oh, we've just had this new feedback or we've just done this focus group, you know, like you say, keep it, these are the kind of things that you might be doing and going, oh, they might not be interested. They are, it's a way for you to do that extra, you know, bit of communication. Just back to you, Faye, in terms of distribution and direct distribution. Yes. What kind of a percentage does a distributor take? So if you, well, the way I, the simplest way to explain it is if you've got um, a price point of say £50 for a product, they're going to be looking for what is called a coefficient of around some, I mean, it's it has changed over the years. It used to be four to 4.5. Now it's more like 4.5 to five. So what I mean by that, if you've got an RRP of £50, divide it by 4.5 to get the price that they're going to want to buy from you at because they are go- the distributor, they obviously are going to have to make their margin. Some distributors will work at 25 to 30%, but some of the bigger, bigger distributors will be working at more like 40 to 50, 45 to 50%. And then they're going to have to sell to the distributor in a similar way, the same way that you are going to sell directly. So that might be the 45%, but it might also be the 55%. And you really want that distributor to be um, able to really invest because part of the beauty of a distributor is that they take your brand and they are going to be able to accelerate it, not just with the retailer conversations within the market, but also within the marketing channels. So you, there needs to be money for a, for them to make a profit, but for them to properly invest, certainly in that first year, 
um, in all of the things that you would want them to do. So the PR, the events, um, being able to connect with the with with the retailers and the consumers in that market, which as we know is is not a it's not an inexpensive thing. So I think distributors are brilliant um, if you have limited resource, limited budget, um, and you find a really good distributor that is well known with complementary portfolio and all of the connections but it is like a marriage and that sounds a bit dramatic but if if your brand is your baby which it not which it always is when we work with founders you're giving over your baby to a particular market um and so it has to be the right person that has to be trust there has to be clear communication reporting this all should be worked into the contract I mean, look, distributors, it's a really tricky one. It's right for some people in some markets. Every business is different. But just really try, I'd say, if you are going to work with the distributor, just try and maintain an element of control. It's really important. If you the founder is the forefront of the business, it's so important that they are still visible in that market and that there yeah. is an element of drive from that original core team that is, you know, is the founder and their kind of exec team. Um, but so I, it's just it's just important that the message and the drive of the brand isn't lost via a distributor. So that communication and control and having a well thought out contract and just a very kind of open communication type of relationship with the distributor is key. But in terms of having a distributor, yeah, it can accelerate things. They can handle lots of things like registrations, any language barriers. Um, and again, they're so well connected in that market. So there's, there's, there's pluses and pros and cons, I guess. But just again, it's, a, it's something to really consider carefully. And when you were talking about pitching to retailers and, and including those customer reviews, um, Wendy, that, like I said, we talked on in terms of that's something that, that you can help cover. How, how have you seen or do you have an example of how you've helped a brand in terms of their customer reviews and how it's changed for them or what, um, yeah, I suppose what, how, by using the reviews, what kind of traction that they've yeah. then gained? Well, I suppose from using the reviews, we've had brands that would have had no real um, brand awareness at all in the market. Nobody would have heard of them. Um, and what that did, the reviews that came back um, were just unbelievable. Like the product is unbelievable. I've tested it. I even repurchased uh, the product. So for me, I'm like Nike, I'm an ambassador for it now nearly because I'm like, have you tried this? Because it's amazing. And they were able to use those reviews to get into a retailer. We did a report for them um, and you could just see the, the the reviews and the comments and the videos and the everything. It was just, you know, mind blowing. So now, we, you know, we're doing the next product. So for me, it's like nearly finding the, the amazing brands that are out there that people are creating um, and just helping them with a platform to to get to more eyes uh, to see it and different things like that. And I suppose it's not just like if you look at even us as a company. So obviously we've used um, <clears throat> Muse with Linda um, with PR. We're partnered with Linda PR. We launched in the UK um, as a brand, even though we don't have a product like mm -hmm. as in as a brand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Um, the PR side of it, I, I, I can't stress enough how important it is to be included because, you know, with that, we were in all different magazines. We were all different things. And all that information, you know, if you're sharing with a retailer, as mentioned in here, as mentioned, and, and they wouldn't have been because of the relationships 
that Linda has. They weren't like all paid. People were just really interested in what we were doing and, you know, really interested to share. So it just validates more again for your brand or your product to get in, you know, and it's like have all those, you know, independent reviews, independent you know, pieces in, you know, different magazines and makes Faye's job really easy. Yeah. Um, And Linda, on the PR side of things, so when, you know, when as a brand do you know that you're ready for PR? Well, there's actually a lot of components that need to be in place that brands don't always realize. On a most basic level, you need the product. So it needs to be market ready. The packaging needs to be final. It needs to be able to be photographed and featured on an editorial page. But also you need to be really clear about what makes your brand stand out. You fine-tuned your messaging and you know it's 100% different and strong from what else is available on the market. On a most fundamental level, the product needs to be easily accessible to consumers. So whether that's a DTC site or bricks and mortar or in an ideal world, the combination of both. And you need to have beautiful imagery, both packed shots and lifestyle images for your PR to use when trying to illustrate the brand story. And you need, I always say to brands, and particularly this is a challenge for small brands, is that you need to be as generous as possible with your actual product as you can be. And you can work with your PR to scale up or scale down. So for instance, with our brand therapy that we look after, we generally have a small quantity of product to seed to press influencers, key opinion leaders, So they'll say, we've got 25 pieces of the new product. And at Muse, we'll make sure that our list is really targeted to achieve the goals that they want to set out. I think the other thing that brands don't think about is you actually need a team member that can facilitate relationship with your PR. Because if you have a good PR on board, it's going to be time consuming and we always joke at Muse that we're, you know, professional stalkers and high maintenance. So you need to have someone on the inside that can help work with your PR team to make it its most successful. And what do you think makes an excellent piece of coverage? Um, from a brand perspective, a positive brand review that shows the product or the service and its most authentic self You want your readership, the target consumer, to have a sense of what it's like to use the product, the feel, the smell, the texture. And ideally, the piece of editorial will incorporate some of the brand's key messages. And that can be anything from sustainability to organic to clean to, you know, having um, clinicals to back up any skincare claims And I mean, I think one of the expectations that a lot of brands have is that when you have a piece of editorial, they immediately think it's going to generate sales. And that's not always the case. Sales generation is a bonus of the coverage. And I think that's true because it's the awareness first. And then you need to retard. Then they'll look at you. They'll read, you know, they might read the reviews. And sometimes, you know, it takes three or four mentions in the media before it clicks for the consumer or for instance they're reading you magazine and edwina's beauty page 
They may like something on the page, they'll rip it out, but they don't do anything about it for six weeks. And you'll see that sale trickle through. And in terms of creating a successful PR strategy, where should you start with that? Um, Well, I think fundamentally you need to figure out what your goal of the PR campaign is. Is it to drive awareness? Is it to build revenue? Is it to create organic traction on social media? And then we always work really closely to compose the objectives of the campaign and and identify activity that makes sense to achieve the goal at hand. One of the things we do at Muse, and I think this helps to keep things really realistic, is we'll ask the potential client, what's the dream? What's the PR dream? What's the wish list that you want to accomplish? And this really helps for the PR and the potential client to have realistic expectations. If they're looking for a cover story on Sunday time style, you know that you need to rein them in. Um, Also, you need to um, secure product samples that you can fulfill product requests from the media. And again, this is something that brands don't necessarily understand the volume of product that it takes. And you need to be really clear about what your key messages are to differentiate the brand from your competitors. And again, these are pillars that should go across your entire marketing mix. And, I, and would be established with that first kind of brand identity exploration, that, that whole part at the beginning. And exactly. if if people are looking to hire an agency, what should they be looking for? Looking for? Um, I think it's really important to test the chemistry between the agency and the brand, because it's not always going to resonate um, and you, you're going to be closely involved with them. So you want to make sure that they represent your brand in the best possible way. You also want them to be articulate and strategic in the telling of your brand story or differentiating your product. Um, we, um, it's also important to find out how they measure success. Mm-hmm. I would urge you to do your homework, speak to industry representatives, speak to the press, seek out old clients. I mean, the beauty industry is small. You can find, you can be a really good detective and find things out easily. I would also look at client testimonials. And I think it's all, this sounds really almost superficial, but look at uh, what other brands are in their portfolio because there can be a halo effect. If you're an indie skincare brand just starting out and they're representing a brand, another skincare brand that's aligned with yours, you can benefit from that conversation. And you also want to be clear about the scope of work that you want to achieve. And I, I think, you know, it's sometimes an uncomfortable conversation when it comes to budget, but be realistic in the sort of agency that you engage. If you are a tiny indie brand, I wouldn't recommend going to a massive PR firm because the fee structure is just going to be inaccessible. And also it's important how your account will be staffed or managed because a lot of times as a brand, you'll have the initial meeting with the PR, they'll wheel out the managing director or the senior members of the team. And once you're on board as a client, you never see that senior team again. Um, And that is just a one point of difference of Muse is 
that were very hands-on at the director level. You'll always have one of our senior team members. And that sort of involvement helps your brand achieve PR goals much quicker. What's going to take a junior person, a staff to achieve can take half the time of someone senior who's well-networked. Yeah. Absolutely. And you mentioned there about customer consumer trials um, in terms of using that as evidence for your story and that. And Wendy, that's something that you help with at Beauty Buddy. Um, How do you manage that? How do you do it? Yeah, so the consumer trials are obviously a little bit different to product sampling, you know. So uh, the difference, I suppose, is that we have to have obviously buy in from the consumer that they know it's a trial. Um, So there could be, you know, chance of a reaction or different things like that. So they have to be signed up onto that. And then we communicate with the the consumer that's trialing the product more often. We reach out and make sure their experience. And then we go through smell, um, like Jackie was saying, it's about the smell um, and the feel. And we get all that kind of feedback together. And then we do a, like a comprehensive report so we can kind of come back with those percentages that, you know, 90 people, 90% said their hands were smoother after using it five times, Do you know, that kind of way. Yeah. So it gives you those claims that you can use then on packaging or for in-store or, you know, for your social media and different things like that. But yeah. it also, um, it's important to have those, I think, Jackie, when you're building a brand. Yeah. Also, I just want to jump in here because I've been working with um, a hair care brand and we've used Beauty Body for reviews and it's worked so well. So we got um, back probably about 300 reviews for the products, which we've been able to utilize across social and especially for a startup brand where you're quite low on content, especially if you've got a small budget. Um, and then also we've put them in the pitch deck as well. Um, and it's worked really, really well at quite, you know, a, a good budget for us or for the client so so that's worked really well yeah and we can I can give you another testimonial for beauty buddy we worked with our client Monica Blunder who was launching at Space NK and prior to our launch at Space NK we did a sampling with beauty buddy and all of the reviews were four star or above which was really impressive to the retailer and gave them the confidence to add more doors to our distribution. So it is really effective to have real objective, real consumer reviews, and they are very impressive and they drive not only brand awareness, but sales. And thank you very much for that, um, ladies as well. I mean, I've got some questions that have come in through the chat, so I'm gonna switch to them for a little bit. Um, So from, Scarlett, how do we find the best influencers for our brand? Um, who wants to take that one? Oh my god, that's a million dollar question because it <laughs> it will always come back to how big is your budget? Um, you know, like influencers know their currency now. Um, you rarely get any influencers working um for free anymore, even like the nano ones. Um, you know, even under you know, five thousand followers, they'll be charging. Um, so yeah, it will just have to come back to what's your budget. I mean, there are platforms out there. There's one that I've been using called Vamp. Um, and you can put um like a minimum budget, like maybe a thousand pounds, and you'd probably get about five influencers, you know, around the sort of like ten thousand follower mark. 
Um, that's work, that works really well for startups. Um, but when you're looking at influencers that are, you know, named influencers people know about, I mean, <laughs> you're talking a lot of money. Yeah. I th- I think- Go on. Sorry, Linda. No, I was just going to say, I think it's also misleading when brands are looking at influencers. They sometimes tend to go to the largest audience and that ne- that's not necessarily going to provide the cut through that you need. So it can be really beneficial to work with the smaller influencers who have a super engaged community and who generate interest from their followers. Yeah. And also content wise, I feel like the smaller ones give more aspirational realness, um, how I call it. So they're like, you know, obviously real people, but, you know, they're not all sort of like glassed and, you know, almost like an ad, you know what I mean? So that does work really well for startups, the smaller ones. I think it's important to assess the grid of the influencer that you're work potentially going to work with, because if the majority of their content is ad driven, that's a consumer turnoff. I think consumers are getting more and more savvy to influencers and the whole transactional relationship. And I think it's important not to spray and pray as well, you know, be be tactical. I love that. Who you're, you're, uh, you know, approaching as well. And um, Liz, one of the um, people that is watching today, she mentioned thesocialcat.com. So www.thesocialcat.com. She said it's free for influencers and brands. You pay a small fee per month, but the content is free. And she uses all the time and gets great user-generated content each week. And I think it's deciding which do you want. Do you want the influencer side of things or do you want the user-generated content? Because if you want user-generated content, you might be after a digital content creator to get them to create stuff for you rather than the influencer as well. And I don't know, like, Wendy, do you, with what you do with consumers, would they create, can you get user yeah. content from your- So our users create their own content. So um, ours is very organic as in the reviews, they put up reviews, video reviews, they're doing video reviews and content and that can all be used by the brand. So okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And just, and, just sorry, sorry, just to say ahead, on that Faith. point, no, just one thing to say on the influencer point quickly is that some of the larger retailers will have their own team of influencers. So if you can't engage some of the larger ones directly, it might be that within your joint business plan that can form part of that. And it might be um, a built into your margin anyway, or it could be just a way where you can um, share samples, a large number of samples with their team of influencers and get some Obviously, you're not going to get pick up from all of them, but it could be a way to try and just nail a couple of those biggies without that huge price tag. And that's more larger retail focus. But I just wanted to mention yeah. that. And on um, another question from Sunny has thought about your thoughts on con- thoughts on contributing to beauty boxes for exposure. So they have been um, contacted by a number. They've, they've been contacted by a number of beauty boxes to include in their subscriptions. That they buy at less than cost price, but yeah. they've had long term results on it. So, what are your thoughts with that? Have you seen that much in terms of people being approached? Um, I think Linda, you have. You must have had. Yeah, I can say from my experience, because we work with a lot of small brands, the quantities that these boxes require is usually prohibitive, especially, you know, a box like by latest in beauty. Um, I would recommend doing a sampling with something like the Beauty Buddy instead, because not only is it cost effective, but you end up with really genuine and authentic reviews from the people that have sampled the product 
And I think there's more added value to that than doing some of the bigger boxes. And then you can use the reviews, you can get the data from it, you know, whereas if you give to the beauty boxes, that's it. You, it's a transaction. And um, also, you know, with the beauty boxes, sometimes there's big fees attached to using the marketing assets. So whether that's the logo or being able to provide a sticker or use it in PR, a lot of times there's separate fees. So read the fine print would be my advice. <laughs> and um, just on... So I know we've, we've still got a bit of time for questions and there's still some more come through on exclusivity Faye for retailers what yes. are the kind of things you should be asking or what are your thoughts on that um okay so on this I do think it can be a really good way to launch into a market because you're going to get for for an exclusivity period you're going to be asking for some obviously some mark a, a large inclusion in a lot of their marketing activations as part of that so it can be a really good way to target an audience that really fits your demographic. Um, I would be mindful of the length of time of exclusivity that you give. So we see anything from six weeks to 18 months for some of the larger retailers. Um, but what is the size of the prize? So that's all well and good that you've got this exclusivity of this really nice shiny retailer that sounds really good. But what does that actually mean? Is there um, what is the marketing included and what is their sales forecast? Honestly, that sometimes this is a question that people don't ask because it's so exciting when you're new and you get this opportunity. But what is what is the potential sales forecast of the opportunity and what are you getting in return to, for giving them your baby for several months? Um, is it a good fit for your target audience? And will the, a crucial question, I think, is what is there anything you're going to lose by doing this? So it's great to have a well-known retailer, but if you've got another couple of other retailer conversations bubbling away in the background, well, by giving them exclusivity, you're not going to be launching the other two or one, or yeah. it could be a number. So what does so what does that mean in terms of loss exposure and revenue? So I think don't get um don't get overexcited. I think take time to consider it. It can be a really, really great way um to to launch into a market especially if you don't have a huge marketing budget this is going to give you a huge amount of exposure it can be a really have a really positive impact and allow you some time to be working away in the background while that's kind of launched you can be working on other things like you know you're building your brand awareness and thinking about okay what is my next plan in terms of retailers another important point is often when we talk to brands they don't realise that they can negotiate two different types of exclusivity periods, one with a bricks and mortar retailer and one with an online retailer. So normally they'll see the word exclusive and be like, OK, well, we're just with them. But actually a lot of pure play online retailers and the bricks and mortar retailers, they don't really sometimes mind if you've got the two running alongside. So I would all, I will always say try and get X to be your bricks and mortar exclusive partner and Y to be your online exclusive partner for the same amount of time. You can then sit back, work on whether it's awareness, your roadmap in terms of other retailers, MPD, whatever it is. Yeah. But then you've got double, you've got double the amount of um, attention, focus, and exposure through their marketing channels. Yeah, and just to add on to that, we have seen when one of our brands has agreed to exclusivity with a retailer or an online platform. If they're exclusive, then they'll dedicate some of their in-house PR power behind it as well. They're much more interested in doing a joint targeted campaign than if you're dealing with, you know, four or five other retail partners. I'm hopping about a bit because I'm seeing the questions that come through. Um, 
anything, Chrissy, you're, you have a question about regulation now that Brexit has and certifications of safety. We discussed this before we came on and started recording. So Faye is advised just to get in touch with her directly and she will um, pass you on to their regulatory person in terms of what the needs are in terms of from a, from a Brexit point of view. Let me just see if there's any other questions that I can see. There was one question about like, how much do you need to, to launch a brand in the UK? How long is a piece of string? Yeah, I mean, that's really, that is probably like the one of the hardest questions to answer. And I think it depends on what your strategy is. If you have got an exclusivity period with a large retailer, well, then you're going to be able to like do so much with them for either built into your agreement or built into your margin. If you haven't got that, and you're you're trying to launch and drive awareness at the same time. I mean, there's there's probably like a, a gold, silver, and bronze tier approach that you can take. Um, yeah. But I think whatever your approach is, you have to be really um, you have to just be really real and realize that your product isn't going to be sent to a retailer and suddenly become this like overnight success. It's going to take time yeah. and attention, and you're going to need experts and support and yeah you are going to have to invest and I think that's one massive question I would ask myself if I'm starting a brand is okay what 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 are the tools I've got to help make this a success and a budget has to be one of them and I think to add to that as well you don't have to I think particularly in the beauty industry you don't have to have a full suite of products there's been a lot of people that have launched with that one hero product and then they've built on so they've invested the time and the money in getting that product right and you know i think just in terms of some things your website from a cost point of view your website could cost up to about three it can cost between three thousand and and twenty thousand you know it just depends but say you go for an average of about three thousand you can get branding done from i mean and jackie might go yeah but it might not be good branding but you can get branding done from about you know two grand upwards um Mm -hmm. And then, Wendy, in terms of getting those consumer reviews and trials, what kind of is the the base price that you can get that from? Yeah, well, we have um, like a mixed sample box that can go out as well. So that's for startups or a new product. So like you're talking about, you know, 500 to 1,000 euro to get get the brand awareness and samples into people's hands at a minimum. Yeah. And then you've obviously got your, your packaging and your product development costs. So that really just depends on you can go for the crap packaging that's not going to look great on that customer shelf or you can go for the nice spec packaging in the nice bottle and so mm-hmm. it, it's down to you know how much do you want it it is really down to kind of how much do you want to invest and and where do you want your brand to be what what do you want it to be but if if, if money is tight and you can start with but you want to start I would just say then start with one product there's many yeah. You know, there's quite a lot of Irish brands. I don't know if we've got people that are from Ireland, but Marissa Carter, who started Coco Brown, she started with it. It was it's basically a one hour tan. She started with one color, one tan. There's a an, another Irish brand called the Smooth Company, and they um, sort of flyaways in your hair. And she started with the one product. Um, I'm sure there's lots of other, you know, um, you know, great facial oils and skincares and that kind of thing. They a lot they often start with one product. So I would. I would be like, do whatever you can, do it well. And if that means you have to start with one, then that's what, personally, that's what I would yeah. suggest. And that's good advice. And I think also one thing that um, Linda mentioned earlier is product itself. You're going to need to invest actual physical product and get that into the hands of as many yeah. people as you can from a PR, from a marketing, from a sampling, from a buyer perspective. Um, so you really need to think about, okay, that's just, that's it, itself is a substantial investment. Um, yeah, and that's a, a key one I just wanted to mention. And before um, a question come through, I couldn't uh, read all of it. It said somebody had stopped um, telling their 
founder story. I'm not too sure the reason why. Um, but all I'd say is people never get bored of reading a founder story. You can tell it in, um, you know, one story in many, many different ways. I mean, you know, look at Richard Branson. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like no one's, you know, everybody knows he's found a story. No one's bored of it, particularly. Um, so, yeah, just keep telling your founder story, but in different ways. But we'll wrap up there because it's five past 11. So thank you very much, ladies, for joining me. I'm going to take a quick photo before we all disappear. And um, if you just, if we just, before everyone kind of logs off, um, you can find me on Instagram at the Byron Retail Coach. Jackie. At Jackie Ripley. <laughs> Jay. At Beautiful. Linda. At Linda Land PR or Muse Communications. And uh, Wendy. Uh, Beauty Body. Thank you very much for joining. I'm glad that you found it useful and look forward to seeing your brands and seeing your businesses grow. Thanks very much, ladies. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. There was lots of information to digest in that webinar and in that podcast episode. The links to all of the people involved are in the show notes so make sure that you reach out to them if you're looking for more information or would like to work with them i'll be back again next thursday with another great guest